you look at the packet in front of you, uh, there is uh, obviously two pages of, of worksheet that we're doing. You're going to see uh, after that passages cited, and there's going to be some books you've never heard of before. And you're going to be going, what in the world? Do I not know my Bible very well? What is this? Uh, I'm going to talk about those in a minute because of the topic that we're uncovering. We're Tonight, we're, it's not as much Bible study. I'm not trying to pull one over on you and bring in books from other sources and things like this. Um, tonight, we're, doing, we're, we're thinking about what elders in the life of the church how that has developed after the close of the New Testament. Uh, so what did it look like? At, what did the churches look like after the close of the New Testament and on? So the, the Bible doesn't give us tons of help there in terms of what history says happened after that. So that's why those books are in there, and we're, we're going to talk about that. On the last page there is the bibliography with those the sources bolded that I used for this, the composing of this worksheet. Uh, I, I want to just say a couple things before we get into tonight to just kind of help us frame again what we're doing. Um, I, I know that there can be a tendency on the part of preachers to, to beat a dead horse. Um, that's just a, it's common amongst our ilk, I guess. Uh, and so I don't want to do that. I don't want to beat a dead horse. But um, there's a few things that I, I want to do with this, and the reason that I want to spend six weeks just going back through it again. This isn't the first time most of you have heard this before. Um, in fact, when I came here, one of the questions, before I even talked to the, uh, the, the pastoral search committee, uh, they sent me a packet, and it basically had just a bunch of questions on it. Richard was a part of that. Several of you in here were part of that. Uh, and they sent me a packet, and it just had some questions on it, and one of those questions was, in the, in the follow-up questionnaire, it was two, two packets, eventually. One of them was, uh, one of the questions was, what's your view of church governance? You know, what, what, how should a church be governed? And I laid out for them in that packet some six years ago uh, exactly what I'm laying out in front of you today. And in subsequent discussions with the pastoral interview, pastoral uh, uh, search team, I told them, look, I make no apologies about the fact that I think a church should be led by elders and be ruled by the congregation." And uh, I think that's the biblical view, and, and I wouldn't lead in any other way except for what I thought was the biblical view of the way the church should be structured. So tonight, or this, these last six weeks, are sort of, if I'm, a, if I'm an attorney before the jury, the congregational rule of the, of the courtroom, uh, then I'm presenting essentially my closing arguments uh, over the course of six weeks, of why I think this should be the case, there, the closing arguments are not trying to prove to you anything you haven't heard already. They're trying to just solidify in your mind what has already been said and just double down on that, maybe even clarify some things that might have been hazy along the way. Um, but I also want to help us to think through how change happens in a church. It happens slowly, but there is a point where change has to come, where it's just got to, all of a sudden, the next day it's different, right? Uh, there's a point where that, the tipping point where that has to happen, and we've set April 30th for that date, where we're going to come together in this room, and we're going to, uh, I'm going to present the bylaws in front of you, and I'm, my hope is that you've been thoroughly convinced that that is the way that a church should be led, and that is evident in the scriptures and we, we make that decision. But it's, it's teaching us how to think through this issue. What, what things should be of concern to us is we think about making a change like this. Is, do we just go, I think this looks nice, you know, and then just make the change? Or what about, what does the Bible have to say about how we operate as a church? You know, it's, I'm sure the Bible is fine with however many paper clips you want to buy and, and pencils and what your budget is shaped like and how the budget is presented before the congregation and things like that. I, the Bible doesn't speak to a lot of that, to be honest. But where it does speak, we should probably listen, right? So we, we've got to learn how to think through that. And then tonight, we're going to see, not only has, has Scripture spoken on this, but then is that it? Is Scripture the only thing that we should be concerned with? Or are there other things? Should we look at other churches and should we go, this is what they're saying about that and that, and that should matter? 
it, are those things important? So it's teaching us how to think through an issue. And then last, it's, to be honest with you, preempting a lot of the criticisms or responses that might be out there. They, some of them might be in your mind, and, but I, I have the feeling, on the whole, most of the people that might be in opposition to the bylaw change are probably not here. I get that, all right? But there is a recording that's being made, right, Robert? Are we, is it recording? Okay, good, because I didn't set that up. So I'm banking on the deacon here. Uh, so there's a recording that's being made that is put online, and this worksheet is put online for all to see it and hear it. So if anybody comes to you and says, well, what about this? You can say, well, he talked about that on Wednesday night. Actually, go here, and you can listen to that, and you can hear what is being said about that. Uh, but my hope is any rebuttals that might be in your mind, any concerns that might be in your mind, that we deal with those up front. I don't want this to be done in the dark. That's not what my goal is. I, want, I believe in congregational rule. I, I think we've preserved that in the bylaws that have been proposed. And I'm presenting this to the jury to make the decision, right? To uh, find the defendant not guilty, or I'm not sure how the metaphor continues after that, but whatever the, however the metaphor continues to, to, to rule in accordance with the bylaw change. So uh, that's the reason. It might feel like I'm beating a dead horse, but you know, I see myself as a prosecuting attorney or defense attorney. I'm not sure what I am at this point, but um, a preacher. Uh, so as we review just some things that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, two sessions now, uh, with obviously my time off last time. Um, remember we said that New Testament churches were not governed by one person, but were led by a group of men who held the office of elder, overseer, pastor. Um, I want to just say here, because we're going to talk about it tonight, bishop, you hear that word now from time to time used in like really high church, uh, Episcopalians and things like that, church, uh, even uh, Catholicism and things like that. Bishop literally is the old English word for overseer. So they, they've taken the word episkopos from the Greek, and, and in English that was the word bishop. That's where it came from. So, um, so essentially elder, overseer, pastor, presbyter is elder, it's the Greek word for elder, so you might hear that from time to time. That's where Presbyterians get their name, presbyter, bishop. That's five terms right there that are all synonymous. Basically, they mean uh, elder or overseer. Um, so there was a group of men who held that office in New Testament churches. Um, the consistent New Testament pattern is a plurality of elders in every church, as we see laid out in Scripture. Uh, their duties include teaching sound doctrine, leading the church in discipline, uh, planning and executing the direction of the church, and distinguishing themselves by modeling how to live the Christian life. They're not above and, and beyond all the members of the congregation, like you're bowing before them or something like that. That's not what I mean by distinct. What I mean by distinct is they have uh, character qualifications that they must meet. And if they don't meet those character qualifications, they're you know, promoted to member. All right, that's essentially how, how it, it looks, um, to put not too fine a point on it. Um, elders arose, as we talked about the last time we were together in the Old Testament, they arose, the term elders was, was used, and the concept of elders really arose as the tribes began to develop, as Israel got larger, and the, the 12 kids of Israel began to have kids themselves. And obviously, you know, if you have a big family, you know how exponentially families can grow very fast. And so they did. And as those tribes began to develop, there were, uh, it was necessary to have people over those tribes, over those families, who were seen as really the patriarchs of the family, the ones that had the most to lose if their family fell apart, right? Uh, their reputation was at stake, and all those kinds of things. And so they were older people, largely, um, that represented the people. But then, beginning with Moses, he started to divvy up responsibilities of the task of leading amongst these elders. And, and slowly, that began to develop in Israel's culture. Even as they got settled into the land, the elders took on a, a, uh, a big responsibility in judging the, the nation and sitting at the gate and people bringing their problems to the person sitting at the gate. Theirs was the gate. Ours is the town square where our courthouses are built. They just sat by the, the city gate and just did it all there. So there you go. That was their, their courthouse, essentially. 
And so they would bring all their problems to the elders who were really essentially judges over them. So when the New Testament forms in between that Old Testament just got into the land period where the elders are making a lot of decisions, as they get into the synagogue era where they start to have synagogues in every town, what do they do when those, when those, uh, those uh, towns are now having, they're coming to the Lord to worship and they're wanting to see, receive direction, spiritual direction? What do they do when they're away from Jerusalem? Well, they, elders are there to kind of shepherd and guide them and, and help direct them in accordance with the ways of the Lord. And so um, when the New Testament church is, it com- uh, comes to be, they don't just, Paul didn't just one day sit down and, with Peter and go, how should we do this? Like, what, what should it look like? You know, should we do the, what about the CEO model? You got the CEO and then you got the board of directors and you got all that kind of stuff. And, and Peter was like, no, I don't think it should be like that. It's going to be, you know, too rife. Well, I know. How about we do it this way? That's not what happened. They had churches and they really saw themselves as worshiping the same Lord that they've been worshiping since the beginning. But now they come to a better understanding of who that God is as He has revealed Himself through the person and work of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who then died for them and gave them salvation. So they're continuing what they've been a part of from the beginning. There's really not much difference. So what do they establish in the church? But elders, who now don't have the qualification of just being older, but having spiritual maturity, having the Spirit within them, it's not just mere age now, it's it's the Spirit is dwelling within them. How do they uh, put the person who is spiritually mature, the people who are spiritually mature, in front of the congregation? And so the elders begin to develop, and then they begin to establish deacons and so on and so forth. So, uh, so this is kind of a continuation for, for what's uh, been happening since the beginning. And now, tonight, we have this question. Uh, okay, are we reading this right? Now, what, who's to say? Right? Uh, me, I believe in that a, a congregation is led by a plurality of elders and congregationally ruled. But you could go down the street to another church and they would take the same passages and they would say to you, no, see, it should be read this way and that would give you a singular pastor with a whole mess of deacons and, and then the church body. And that's how it should be led as you've probably come to, to know of Southern Baptist churches uh, more recently have largely been led. So then we have to ask the question, who, who's right? And how do we know? And, and am I reading these passages right that I've put in front of you for several weeks? I've, I've said, look, well, look what it says here. Go appoint elders in every church. That's not just an elder in each church. That is elders in every church is how it's phrased in the Bible. So that's clearly what they were doing. That's my argument. How do you know if I'm right? Well, uh, coming out of the generation of the apostles, that is the big A apostles, Peter, Paul, that is the little A apostles, James, the brother of Jesus, um, you know, and several others like that. They're called apostles as well, but they different. Okay, we'll, that's another discussion for another time. But point is, big A apostles, the, that means the 12 plus Paul and little A apostles um, that established the church in its governance, the apostolic fathers continued what they had been taught. So the apostolic fathers is a group of people who were discipled by the disciples, the original 12. And guess what they did? They did what their teachers did. They wrote. And we have their books too. Isn't that amazing? And you can read, disciples of the apostle John record what their letters are to various pastors in churches. In fact, they wrote letters, in some cases, to some of the same churches that we find letters to in the New Testament. I want to be very clear here. What the apostolic fathers say in their writings is not inerrant and it's not infallible. They're men, okay? Not that the apostles weren't men, but they do not carry the same authority as the apostles, and they'll really most commonly be the first to tell you that that they're not the apostles. But if you were wanting to know what George Washington thought about something, would you read something by me that tells you here's what George Washington thought about something? Or would you read something by Alexander Hamilton? What would be the benefit of reading something by Alexander Hamilton? 
Well, you'd get an idea of what he thought about that. And his thoughts are probably informed by and pretty close to, or at least closer than me, to George Washington. In fact, when a Supreme Court justice is ruling on something that is constitutional or not, they don't just go to the Constitution, do they? They actually look at all the founding documents. That includes books written by Alexander Hamilton, books written by Thomas Jefferson. The phrase, separation of church and state, did not actually occur in the Constitution. It occurred in Thomas Jefferson's writing much later. But how did it come to be in a Supreme Court ruling? It came to be because they're reading the works around the Constitution. Now, we can argue about whether they interpreted that rightly or wrongly. That's not my point. But my point is to say the apostolic fathers, what they do is they help us understand whether or not the passage that we just read in the New Testament, did we interpret that right? Is that what they meant by that? I think that's what they meant. Is that what they meant by that? And so the apostolic fathers help to inform us on some of those things. They will be wrong, and they will be very weird sometimes. I'm just going to lay that out there for you. Uh, but yes, they are often very insightful. So the writings of the apostolic fathers, uh, again, are not to be read as having the same authority as the Holy Scriptures. They're not, to, they're not inerrant. They're not infallible. However, they do give us some insight into the intentions of the apostles. So, um, hopefully this might be interesting. I'm hoping this is interesting to you tonight. Um, in, the early, in an early writing known as the Didache, uh, that Didache means the Twelve, uh, the teaching of the Twelve. That's uh, where it gets its name, Didache. Um, the structure of the leadership in the church is described as a plurality of bishops and deacons who together care for the church. And I want, I want to read this. Um, so this, this book, the Didache, I've even got a little citation down there at the bottom, um, that it's normally dated somewhere between the 50s and 60s A.D. So just think about that for a second. Time-wise, when the Didache occurs, we don't know who wrote it. It's anonymous. But it, it pretty clearly summarizes a lot of the teaching that you find in the New Testament and uh, even has some things, some instructions that you don't really find, but, it, but is probably what's going on in the New Testament. Some things on baptism and stuff like that, that some things we even do today um, that actually come from that. Um, the Didache 15, 1-2, it says this, Therefore, appoint for yourselves bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord. That is, uh, overseers, elders, and deacons worthy of the Lord. Men who are humble and, and not av avaricious and true and approved, for they too carry out for you the ministry of the prophets and teachers. You must not, therefore, despise them, for they are your honored men along with the prophets and teachers. Um, so there's an instruction of what the apostles are teaching the churches, and that is... Appoint for yourselves in every church bishops, overseers, uh, elders, and deacons. And uh, so that pretty clearly reflects what we've said is true of the New Testament. So then we get to a book uh, by a, a man that goes by the name of Clement um, of Rome. So there's many Clements in history. Clement of Rome is, is the one we're talking about. It's possible, I don't know for sure, nobody really knows for sure, it's possible that this very same Clement is the same one referred to in Philippians. This Clement right here died somewhere in the 90s AD, so he was very much alive, was very much discipled by the apostles, was, you know. Um, so anyway, he is, uh, seems to be very influential in Rome, and he writes a letter to the church in Corinth, the very same church that Corinthians comes from. He writes a, a letter to the Corinthians known as First Clement. And it says, because I guess First Corinthians was already taken. Uh, and he says, <laughs> he says, of the two offices clearly established in the New Testament, elder and deacon, um, the 
early church affirmed that leadership is entrusted to a group of presbyters, elders, or bishops, overseers. Let's read this in 1 Clement 42, 1-5. The apostles received the gospel for us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ was sent forth from God, so then Christ is from God and the apostles are from Christ. Both, therefore, came of the will of God in good order. Having, therefore, received their orders and being fully assured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and full of faith in the word of God, they went forth with, fir- with the firm assurance that the Holy Spirit gives, preaching the good news that the kingdom of God was about to come. So preaching both in the country and in the towns, they appointed their first fruits when they had tested them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons for the future believers. And this was no new thing they did, for indeed something had been written about bishops and deacons many years ago, for somewhere, thus says the Scripture, I will appoint their bishops in righteousness and their deacons in faith. He quotes a a Greek translation of Isaiah there. Um, so what he's saying is basically the, Jesus came from the Lord, he saved us, then he set up the apostles, gave them his spirit, and sent them out. They went out preaching the gospel. And when they did, when people, their first fruits, when people began to be saved, they took out from them men who were qualified of those saved, spiritually more mature, given more depth of insight, and they trained them and established them as pastors, elders, overseers, bishops, and deacons of the church body. And they were there for future believers. So they were there so that when other people came to faith, they could teach them and train them and, and whatever, what have you. Okay, now look at First Clement 44, 1-6. Our apostles likewise knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that there would be strife over the bishop's office. For this reason, therefore, having received complete foreknowledge, they appointed the officials mentioned earlier, and afterwards, they gave the offices a permanent character. That is, if they should die, other approved men should succeed to their ministry. Those, therefore, who were appointed by them or later on by other reputable men with the consent of the whole church, look at that, congregational rule, and who have ministered to the flock of Christ blamelessly, humbly, peaceably, and unselfishly, and for a long time have been well spoken of by all, these men were considered to be unjustly removed from their ministry. For it will be no small sin for us if we depose from the bishop's office those who have offered the gifts blamelessly and in holiness. Blessed are the presbyters, elders, who have gone on ahead, who took their departure at a mature and fruitful age, for they no longer fear that someone might remove them from their established place. For we see that you have removed certain people, their good conduct notwithstanding, from the ministry which had been held in honor by them blamelessly. Now there's some things in this passage that is kind of uh, contextual and you might say is kind of weird. He's writing to the church at Corinth. All right? Not much has changed. Okay? the church in Corinth. There's still ongoing things, and it seems as though there have been some elders that have been removed from their position, even in spite of their good conduct, and they've just not been liked or something. I don't know, but for some reason they were removed, and what Clement is saying is that the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ knew that there would be strife over the bishop's office, because as it turns out, people don't like to be led. Amen, somebody. All right. We just don't like to be led. We would say we like strong leadership as long as it's leading someone else, right? As long as you're stepping on their toes, that's fine. When you step on my toes, I no longer like strong leadership. That's not strong leadership. That's overreach, you know, right? That's abuse of power, you know. And so there's going to be strife over the bishop's office. And so what they did then was they gave the office a permanent character That is, they appointed a plurality of men to succeed them in their ministry. So like if a a bishop died, what would happen to the church? Well, it would just be leaderless. 
Well, wouldn't that be convenient for a bunch of people who don't like to be led to be able to oust the one guy or kill him off or whatever they do, and now all of a sudden they are leaderless? Well, Clement is saying, look, they've established this office for good reason. And the reason that it's established in its plurality and appointed people who are blameless, humble, peaceable, and unselfish, and well-spoken of by all, they point, appoint them as the leaders of the church so that there can't be an, a levied accusation against them, for one, so that you can't just remove them. Because if you do remove a person who is otherwise blameless before you, in other words, he's not guilty of the sin that would, of which you're condemning him for, then it's no small sin for you, right? So it's, it's placing an onus on the congregation. So, but it's not to get into the weeds of what's happening in Corinth in the letter of Clement, but what it is is to say, you understand how they're seeing this office. And the arguments that I've made about what the New Testament is doing and what the plurality of the elder office is supposed to establish is the same here. It's the same reasoning. You don't want one guy leading your church. For one, what happens if he gets hit by a bus? I don't want to get hit by a bus, but what happens if I do? Where are we going to be? We're probably not having church on Sunday. You know, forget about the little thing at the park. <laughs> We're probably not going to meet on Sunday. Or I don't know. Something's going to happen. Or if y'all do meet, I'll be offended. Um, <laughs> probably won't. I don't think I'll care. Uh, but... Uh, but the point is, the church should pick up where it left off. Well, that's a little bit of tears. Okay, just a, uh, a few. I mean, give me, give me something. You know, I'm just kidding. Um, but the point is, it should continue. The ministry of the church shouldn't be hampered or hindered because, of, because one guy falters. What if he sins so grievously that he's not, he's not able to be an elder anymore? And that happens all the time. And what happens to the church then? Well, what, what would happen, though, if that same elder who fell now falls and is under church discipline and a group of men who have been leading you the whole time come before you and say, yes, this happened. Yes, he's being disciplined. Yes, he's disqualified from being an elder forever. But he's receiving church discipline. He's still a member of our church. We still care for him. And we're going to restore him to member. And he's going to be repentant. And he's going to be on the pews singing with you but he's not going to be your pastor, right? That would be hard. It'd be hurtful. It'd be tough to deal with. It'd be a dark season for the church, but could the church bear it? Well, a lot more than they could if this one had stumbled and, well, there, we don't have enough pastor. Let's put together, I guess, a committee or something. Let's put together a search team and let's figure out what to do. Let's go out there searching, right? Doesn't it just, it makes a little bit more sense? And how could the church function any other way? than that. Well, they figure it out, and they often split because of these kinds of things. But, um, so, by the time we get to the early 2nd century, so we're talking like early 100s, first 50 years of the 100s, um, Ignatius of Antioch is another apostolic father, he's another church father, um, a disciple of John, I believe, begins to venerate the, the role of bishop in the church as something of a head pastor or main leader, and then a council of elders that he typically refers to as presbytery, which means elders, uh, around him to aid in shepherding the church. And so we're going to read uh, a couple of these uh, excerpts from his letters in just a second, but I want you to kind of picture the way Ignatius is sort of uh, instructing the church. And, and that is, here is a, a, a group of men who are leading, but there's kind of got to be, he thinks, one person sort of calling the shots and sort of just, you know, kind of saying how the cow ate the cabbage. You familiar with that phrase? Got to tell them how the cow ate the cabbage. Um, and so he kind of calls that person a bishop, which is overseer, and presbytery, which is elder. In the scriptures, there's no really distinguishing of that, but he, he feels the need to kind of say there's got to be one guy up there in the middle that's kind of at least calling some, some shots. And so the presbytery serves to kind of support this person. All right, so Ignatius to the Trillians in 3.1, he says, Similarly, let everyone respect the deacons as Jesus Christ, just as they should respect the bishop, 
that is, that would be what we would call the head pastor, who is the model of the Father. Oh, the model of God. And the presbytery, uh, that would be the elders, as God's counsel and as a band of the apostles. Without these, no group can be called a church. That's pretty strong words, isn't it? Not only strong words, but we're going to see in just a minute, I think maybe a bit too far. All right, but that's okay. We're just reading how they're thinking, okay? Um, all right, look at Ignatius to the Magnesians, which sounds like a pill you take or something. Um, six one. it says, Since, therefore, in the persons mentioned above, I have by faith seen and loved the whole congregation, I have this advice. Be eager to do everything in godly harmony. The bishop presiding in the place of God. Ah! And the presbytery in the place of the council of the apostles and the deacons, who are most dear to me, having been entrusted with the service of Jesus Christ, who before the ages was with the Father and appeared at the end of time. Okay, now I want to be really careful and I want to be fair to Ignatius here, just for a second, okay? So I want to be an advocate for Ignatius. He's right here alongside with me, and, and I'm going to tell him, Ignatius, that was too strong, okay? That being said, I need you to think about what he, maybe, what is going on in his mind. For one, remember, everybody in the church for a long time has been looking to the real apostles. John died somewhere around 100 A.D., oldest, we think, living apostle. He'd been around for a long time. These people healed people, right? These people healed the blind, casted out demons. They had gifts that the Lord had given to them in their office of apostle that allowed them to do things that no one else was doing. So if you had that, and they're writing Scripture, and they're sending it out to churches, and the churches are telling people that these words from the apostles are inerrant and infallible, and they must be followed at all costs in order to be a church, when they die, what happens? How do you feel, Magnesians, as a church, when all the apostles die? Well, we have this constitution as a new nation, but George Washington died, Alexander Hamilton died, so on and so forth. Go down to Thomas Jefferson died. All the founding fathers died. And now we have this static document, and here's a court case in front of me that I have no idea. Nobody ever foresaw this court case coming, and I've got this document called the Constitution that's static, and I've got to look at it and figure out what Thomas Jefferson would do in this situation. Good luck. So if you can imagine that feeling in the first century, you can understand why Ignatius is telling the church, look to your pastor. Look to the elders. Look to the deacons. They were appointed in succession by those very same apostles. And their responsibility is to you to encourage you, to teach you, to reprove you, rebuke you, and, and instruct you in every way. So if you've got a church over here in the Magnesians who's having all kinds of problems that the apostles never foresaw, what else is he going to say to them? But look to the elders, okay? So if that helps you kind of get just in the mindset for just a second, I'm going to make it a little bit more inflammatory. Uh, for Ignatius... The bishop was constitutive of the church. I'll explain what that means in just a second. No valid Eucharist or baptism could be held in his absence, and he, along with the rest of the elder body, the presbytery, was to be obeyed by the congregation. Look at what he says. Uh, Ignatius to the Smyrnians. Yes, the same church of Smyrna that's there in Revelation. Flee from divisions. As the beginning of evils. Uh-oh. You must all follow the bishop. Be the head pastor. As Jesus Christ followed the Father. That's, that's pretty following. Alright. Uh, and follow the presbytery as you would the apostles. 
Respect the deacons as the commandment of God. Let no one do anything that has to do with the church without the bishop. Only that the Eucharist, which is under the authority of the bishop, or whomever he designates, is to be considered valid wherever the, wherever the bishop appears. There let the congregation be. Just as whenever Jesus Christ is, there is the, hold on, Catholic Church. That ain't Roman Catholic Church. That is universal church. Wherever Jesus is, that's where the church is, the whole church. It is not permissible either to baptize or to hold a love feast without the bishop. But whatever he approves is also pleasing to God in order that everything you do may be trustworthy and valid. That's a, that is a pretty strong thing he's putting on the congregation. But think about what that's putting on the pastor. Right? Think about what that's putting on the pastor. He's telling this, and you've got to think, the, the, the bishop, the head pastor at Smyrna is probably reading this letter from Ignatius to the Smyrnians, and he's going, <clears throat> um, okay, uh, I'm going to say this, don't shoot the messenger, right? Because that's really strong, and he's probably also feeling the weight of responsibility of that office to actually distinguish himself from the congregation, to be a leader of the congregation and to be holy and upright and worthy of that calling. That doesn't mean he doesn't sin or doesn't make mistakes, and that's not what his point is. His point is, in the context of the first century church, Jesus is gone, his spirit is amongst us. The apostles are gone, the spirit that Jesus gave to them is amongst us, but they're not amongst us anymore. So what do we do? He's saying, look to the, the head pastor, look to the elders that are in the church, the presbytery, and look to the deacons to lead you in both service and in teaching. The deacons in service and the, the, the elders in teaching. Now, clearly, there is a move here in Ignatius toward a structure in which the bishop at least partially fills the vacuum left by the apostles. So you have to kind of say, as much as I would not use the same words that he's using to, to talk about how you should relate to the pastor, um, he's not advocating, I don't think, for an unquestioned submission, even if they abuse their office. The Bible doesn't advocate for that, and I don't think Ignatius is doing that either. He says, if there's a, Paul says, if, if an elder is to be decommissioned, let it be on the charge of one or two, witness, or two witnesses or more, not just on the witness of one. So Ignatius is not going against that. Certainly if there's an elder abusing his office, you need to come forward with that. But what he's saying is, look, in the absence of the apostles and of Jesus, we are looking to the pastors to shepherd our church. Now, while the veneration of the bishop or head pastor, and the rest of the elder body to the place of apostles is probably too far. It's clear that the early church sought to preserve the clear teaching of elder plurality as established by the apostles. That's all I wanted to say, was it's very clear that they are adhering to that for good reason, okay? And they're continuing what the elders taught. So when we ask the question, am I reading these passages right where the, where the apostles went to every town and appointed elders in every church? The early church is telling you, yes, you're reading that right. That's exactly what they did. And there's a good reason they did it. Because they had foresight and they knew what was going to happen to that office of elder. In fact, Paul tells the elders in Ephesus, that's what's going to happen. When I die, there's going to be wolves. Rise up. Shepherd the flock that is among you, he tells them in Acts 20. Why does he tell them that? It's the same thing Ignatius is saying right here. All right. So great. First, second century, third century church even, it was there. By the way, we can talk about the, where the Catholic church comes from and all that later, but you're starting to see the kind of beginnings of the thought. Ignatius is not starting the Catholic church as the Catholics would claim, but the seeds for that Catholic church is coming. Okay, but we're not talking about that tonight. So it's great. It's the first century, second century, third century. The apostolic fathers, they see this. It seems to be in the New Testament. Fine. But is it Baptist? Right? You get this question. Is it, it's not very Baptist. Right? 
When discussing elder plurality in a Southern Baptist church, criticisms are often levied that this structure of church leadership is not Baptist, but is more akin to Presbyterianism, or even perhaps Episcopalianism, Anglicanism, or even Catholicism. Now, those churches, especially Episcopalianism, Anglicanism, Catholicism, they all see plurality of elders, bishops, all those kinds of things. They see that. They just don't see the autonomy of the local church, right? So Catholicism, they still have the plurality of bishops in place, overseers, but they just have them over the entire church rather than over one singular congregation, right? But it's still a plurality. Okay, um, Presbyterianism is a whole different animal. We talk about that another time. However, throughout the 17th century, English Baptists, I'm going to go through these in relatively quick succession, English Baptists affirmed the office of elder. In 1697, Benjamin Keach, who was a Baptist, uh, English Baptist, wrote of bishops, overseers, or elders, clearly implying that these New Testament titles referred to one office, yet rejecting the concept of ruling elders or Presbyterian, uh, presbytery outside the church as is common in Presbyterian church. So that he's, not, he's not advocating for uh, uh, elders or, or whatever, or presbytery outside the church that observes the church and rules over the church, but a presbytery inside the church, a group of elders inside the church that are to lead and guide, and that's uh, 17th century, that's the 1600s, English Baptists. Okay, well, let's go to the 18th century. Uh, the Charleston Association of Baptists, uh, so this would be the 1700s, in their summary of church discipline, affirm that ministers of the gospel in the New Testament are frequently called elders, bishops, pastors, and teachers, and that within one local congregation, there is a plurality of elders. And in all of these, they made uh, uh, some carve-outs for congregations that would be 10 people, right? You may not have a plurality of elders in a 10-person congregation, right? Okay, so fine. But uh, when the congregation gets larger, uh, a, a, a plurality of elders is certainly called for. The first president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Okay, fine, English Baptist. Great, okay. Oh, okay, Baptist outside of the Southern Baptist. But Southern Baptist, we've always been led by one singular pastor and a whole mess of deacons and all kinds of other things, right? The first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, W.B. Johnson, wrote of New Testament churches in his book, The Gospel Developed, that each church had a plurality of elders. A plurality in the bishopric, that is in the pastorate, is of great importance for mutual counsel and aid that the government and edification of the flock may be promoted in the best manner. Government and edification of the flock. That's the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention. That was 18, well, he was president in 1845. Um, so it had been somewhere around there. I don't know when the book was written. Uh, it is indisputable fact, as testified in the writings of Baptists and Southern Baptists for centuries. Okay, just to go through a few of these that I didn't include the quotes but you can go back and see their books uh, or their writings. J.L. Reynolds, who was pastor of Second Baptist in Richmond, Virginia in 1849. William Williams, which is a great name, right? <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Uh, founding faculty of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in 1874. You heard this? J.L. Burroughs, chairman of the SBC Foreign Mission Board. That would be the IMB and also pastor of First Baptist Richmond, Virginia. So First and Second Baptist Richmond, Virginia had a whole bunch of elders. All right. A.H. Strong, Charles Spurgeon, to name a few. The plural eldership was an accepted norm in the teaching in Baptist and in Southern Baptist churches in their origin. All right. It's us that has gotten far away from that. And if that isn't enough, when they all formed... Southern Baptist churches or Baptist churches in England or wherever. What did they have as their confession? Well, they had these adopted Baptist confessions of history. They adopted, they, it was a statement of faith. It was what they confessed to be true, and you had to confess the same thing in order to be a member of their church. So when Southern Baptist churches formed, or when English Baptist churches formed, or when this Baptist church or that Baptist church all formed, they came to these same generally accepted confessions. Among them 
are Second London, you'll hear of, in 1689, was a confession developed in 1689, Philadelphia Confession in 1742, New Hampshire in 1833, my personal favorite, all acknowledge elders as an office in the church. Therefore, eldership is more Baptistic than its absence is. So right now, we would say, no! We would look back at Second London and go, wait a minute. The Baptist church has always had one singular pastor. Well, not according to our confessions that date back to as far back as the 1600s. So, what does that mean? Well, that means that at some point along the way, during the revivalism of the 1800s and various other things, there began to rise up a singular pastor model. And that is, I contend, a more modern invention than perhaps you would be inclined to think. You dig back far enough in your history books, you will see not only that we, Baptist churches, were originally led by a plurality of elders and governed congregationally, but that every denomination outside of us has a plurality of elders in some respect. Presbyterianism, yes, they structure it a little bit differently. It's sort of strange to a congregationally ruled congregation like us, like Southern Baptists, of course. But there is a plurality of elders. Episcopalian, the word episcopacy is in the name. They are overseers, but they just aren't over one singular church. They're over a church broadly. Catholicism, literally every single thing that would call itself a Christian church has a plurality of elders of some sort. So to think that we should be an autonomous church, pastored by one singular man, is absurd. It happens slowly. How did we get so far off the rails? You said well, it wasn't just us. Okay, so not just this is not just EBC. When we say us, we're talking Baptists as a whole. Um, well, there's probably a billion different answers to that question. And there's probably not one reason why. But I would say there are a couple of things that were really influential. There were a couple of authors in the early or the late 1800s that were really influential in the church that advocated for radical congregationalism. And they said, look, everything, well, of course they didn't have air conditioning back then, but that would have been thrown into the congregational things if they did have air conditioning back then, they, look, temperature should be set by congregational rule. I mean, literally, every paperclip you buy by congregation, some of you, some of you I know, are shaking your head to that. I get it. Uh, but they advocated for radical congregationalism. Along with, there, there were a lot of really popular, very famous preachers that were making their circuit singular men, and so you get a good pulpiteer who stands in the pulpit and you're like, man, I really like that guy. I don't want to come to church when he's on vacation or whatever. And then all of a sudden, you've got everything gravitating toward that one singular guy, and I don't want to hear from anyone else. There's probably a lot of that in the revivalistic movement that came up. You get one good influential person and you don't want anybody else you know, leading the church. But like anything else, it's, you take just one little step this direction, one little step that direction, one more, one more, one more. And then all of a sudden, you are way far off the road. And I'm not trying to bore any of you. I'm not, I don't, you know, it's a step through history. And I realize in doing that, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't really, let's vote now. I don't care, you know. And you, some of you are probably like that. And that's, that's fine. But I, I don't want you to think that, that where I'm at is because of some viewpoint that I have. Some people have, have criticized the elder plurality of elder movement as being Calvinistic, and this is a way of getting Calvinism. I'm a Calvinist. I've told you that from the beginning, and I teach that way, and I, I believe that's, that's true, and, but I'm not going to beat you over the head with it. I'm just going to tell you that that's the way I think and, and show you where I get there in the Scriptures, but this has really nothing to do with that as, uh, on the whole. This is, is really, it's, I want to be moved by the Bible, and if I make an argument for Calvinism and I don't go back to the words of the Scripture, then you have every reason to reject it out of hand. Why would I think that my words should have any more sway than yours? They shouldn't, unless they're biblical. That's what should give all the weight, right? But not only is it biblical, it's also historical. 
we can see that our understanding of the Scripture in this regard is right because that's what all the churches were doing afterwards. They were all picking up that same model. Yes, Ignatius got it a little bit over here. He kind of went a little straight, and maybe another one went a little bit this way, but that's what they're doing. And they're advocating for that establishment in the church. So, it's hopefully, even though you may not be the biggest history buff out there, maybe you're seeing, hopefully, that you can take a well-reasoned approach and check, is my understanding of Scripture right? How do I know that? Well, your pastor's going to help. Your pastors are going to help. Your congregation, the church around you is going to help. I don't think that's right. I don't think you should read it that way, right? The, the, the history books should help you in that regard. There's great preachers, great theologians out there that should be able to instruct you away from heresy and all kinds of other things. So it's important that we think through this, and, and, and I don't want you to think that this decision that we're making, that we're doing so in the dark, that we're doing so lightly, that I take it lightly, well, just change them, just go in there and wreck shop, just change some things, and who cares if people leave? I care. I don't want anybody to leave. I don't want anybody to get upset. I want everybody to be on the same page. At the same time, I'm going to stand on the backbone of Scripture, and if somebody gets mad over that, you don't want your pastor to be influenced by that. You, know, you don't. You want them to, their backbone to be steeled by the Word of God and for them to stand on it, and regardless of what everybody else is doing or saying, right? And to be able to prove that to you. So as we think about this, the next few weeks are going to be taking things from the bylaws, and my hope is that I can at least demonstrate how what we're doing there is calling back to some of these things that we've established, we see established in, in the text of Scripture. All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for our time together. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for, we're grateful for the early church. And as humans, as, as people who were flawed, who were sinful, uh, standing on the ground of Scripture, worshiping Christ to the end. Many of them were killed for, uh, for your name, and uh, we're grateful for them. We would not be here without their enduring testimony. So we're grateful for them, and, um, and so we're grateful for their letters. We're grateful for their writings. We're grateful for, to be able to read other Christians throughout history and what they thought and what they went through. And it's a great encouragement to us. And, and I pray that you would help us to have our minds shaped by, informed by the Scriptures, first and foremost. And that we can look to other Christians around us for encouragement and for help, and for specifically encouragement toward the teaching of your Word, not away from it. So I pray that you would help to give us discerning minds that we might be able to see what is true and what is false. Help discern truth from falsehood. Give us that, that discernment, please. And help us in the midst of all this to be peaceable, to be in unity, to be loving and kind toward one another. And where there is objection and where there is dissension, maybe through encouragement or through teaching, uh, that even those might come around to a position that is true to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.